so different to be back over here. Uh, for those of you, maybe it's your first or second time, you might know what I mean, but for the last few months with COVID, uh, we've been meeting in the sports centre and we've all been like, uh, the guys who put the chairs out, we need to thank them so much in the past because they would literally... So, you know, we're talking about Mark Harrington and Yako. Man, Yako, he is really anal with those chairs, isn't he, Callum? Oh, yes, he is. He does them very well. And uh, Matt Doyle and, and uh, Jed and so many other people and young people helping. Huge thank you for you guys because putting out chairs that you know people are going to push around and probably not be in the right place, uh, but you still did it. And uh, huge thank you. Today, I want to share a message that I must admit, it sounds easy to, for it to actually slip off my tongue, but when it actually comes down to the heart of it, I actually find it difficult in my own walk with God, in my own relationship. How many of you here uh, would say at some point in time, or perhaps right now, you're in love? Yeah, good job, Sunday. You know what I'm talking about. Could be in love with your kids. That's it's a bit harder, but no, no, we love our kids. But, you know, during the week, Cara said to me, on Wednesday night, we're going to have date night. Now, when your wife reminds you that it's date night, as a man, and you young guys that aren't married yet, take note. That is something extremely significant and not to be forgotten. And uh, on Tuesday, Cara reminded me. Now, Tuesday night is the night before what, Sean? It's like a test. It's like they want us to fail. And I said, you notice Cara's, I sent her an errand for me quickly. <laughs> so much more courage. But if Cara's here, I would just be gutless on that one. Because, but come Wednesday, it's my job. Now, this is even more significant. It's now my job to organise date night. Now, you girls are just like snickering because for you, I think it's easy for you to organise date night. But for guys, it's tough. Like seriously tough. And I'm semi-creative, which means occasionally I come up with one good idea. And for date night, you need to come up with a number of good ideas. And going to your local Thai restaurant won't do because that's not romantic. Guys, like, what am I going to do? So I want to tell you that I pulled out all stops. I went to the Thai restaurant and bought the food because she doesn't want me to cook for her on date night. So I bought the food and she wanted to go to the gym because in this month we bought like $5 gym membership. We figure we should use it. So I was like, well, that's the first part of date night covered. And I also organise at our gym, there's like, there's actually massage chairs. It's a bit gross, like everyone's sweated on those things. But anyway, so we went to the, uh, went to those, um, those, I'm going to call them the sweat seat, but those massage chairs. Caleb, you know what I'm talking about, it's at our gym, bro. But you're too stingy to buy that, weren't you? Yeah, sorry, mate. Um, put you under the bus. But anyway, we did that and came home, and I want to tell you, as a bloke, I did better than 10 out of 10. Because the day before, Cara has wanted me to go and buy carpet. So a section of carpet to put in our, our shed. And I laid it out, 
for her the day before, and I used that fresh carpet for date night. Had the massage table, which I had to disassemble to carry up to the shed, and then organized a really, really nice night. Tara loves lights, uh, so I borrowed some of her lights, because I don't own any, and stuck them around the place. And I want to tell you, I'm in the good graces for at least another week. But, you know, when it comes to responding to something like love or, or being in a relationship with someone, sometimes it takes a bit of work. And for some of us, it doesn't come as naturally as for others. For me, I actually have to work at it. You know, there are times where I forget to put the passion back into what should be the most important thing in my life, and that's my family and my wife and my kids. Today, I want to look at that idea of how we respond to a loving God. So I'm going to put it out there. A couple of weeks ago, I preached about the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I want to take it the next step from there and actually put the challenge Well, I'm going to say to all of us, because I find this incredibly challenging for myself, and that is how do we respond to Jesus' love? How do we respond to Jesus' love? Let me pray, and and we'll open the word of God. Lord, I just want to invite you to be in our space now, and for us to be able to think clearly, and to be able to listen and respond to your Spirit's nudging. Lord, uh, thank you that we can be back in our homes here at uh, the Performing Arts Centre. And I pray that right now um, you would bless this time. Amen. Growing up in a little place called Kurumbong is not cool. I just want to tell you that even when I use the word Kurumbong, it sounds like a dumb name for a town. But I want to tell you, I grew up near Kurumbong. Not quite. But my grandma, and I was part of the latchkey generation where mum and dad both had to work, so I'm in the first generation where that was the norm, Uh, I would often spend at least maybe one school night a week at my grandparents. I didn't mind because I was a golden child to my grandma. I I could do almost no wrong. I can never remember being disciplined or even smacked by grandma. So in my opening illustration, I'm going to use the word stick Um, Now, some of us who are over my age, or perhaps my age group, actually remember what it was like for our parents to use some form of timber on our bodies. Other people, they used hoses and other instruments of torture on their children. Well, for me, it was a piece of timber. And it usually involved something that mum used to stir the big pots of food with. And on many occasions, those pieces of timber broke on my bottom. And I was so proud of the moments when they would break, because I would walk, like it was a celebration that I had accomplished something. There may have been occasions I weakened them a little, that mum and dad didn't know about. Mum's not here, so I can get away with it. But for my grandma, she never used the stick on me. Now... Growing up in that area, Kurumong in winter is bitterly cold. Now, we in Queensland 
especially around Brisbane, don't know what it is to be bitterly cold. I think in all the time I've lived on the north side of Brisbane, I think it was only one day that I would actually say was cold like Kurumba. And it was about a year ago, and it was on a Sabbath day, and it was just freezing. I don't think it got over 10 degrees uh, that day here in, in Queensland. And everyone in Queensland was whinging about how cold it was. Well, in Kurumong, it was cold like that for about six months of the year. And, and it was early in the morning, and my thing that I enjoyed doing the most when I was at my grandma's, I could actually take my... This was before BMX, it was called an MX. And it was made of cast steel. This thing was the heaviest push bike I've ever, ever seen. Uh, but I thought it was the grooviest bike. It was like almost a drag bike. And I would ride from my grandma's, those of you who know Kurumbong, you know Red Hill. So I would drive my pushing from Red Hill. I'd go across that famous bridge called the Swing Bridge. And I would zip down. I would ride around past the girls' dorms on Girls' Walk, I think they called it. And then I would ride to Avondale Road and straight up the big road to our school at Avondale. And as a 10-year-old, I was bee's knees. This was the bomb. I'd catch up with mates in Kurumong that I didn't see too much. And we would go and do some off-roading on our pushies. And, uh, but on one occasion, my grandma decided to share some insight into the Word of God with me. And I want to tell you, she did a really good job. Because for the next six hours of school, I was terrified. Now, as a 10-year-old, I was a concrete thinker. So it meant I trusted my grandma and the words that came out of my grandmother's I saw as the gospel or truth. But my grandmother had an uncanny ability to share something about Jesus without sharing anything about the grace of Jesus. And, and she was straight to the point, a German Jew woman, uh, who'd grown up as a Catholic, which is a really weird combination. She'd argued her way into Adventism because she lived next door to the pastor, the Adventist pastor, and, and they would argue over the fence. And uh, when we get to heaven, I'll introduce her to you, and she'll probably be arguing with Peter or Paul or someone. But my grandma scared the daylights out of me because she had shared a message for worship, and I must admit, I've, that was the worst time of actually being at my grandma's when she took worship. And she shared a message about a God who, uh, if you were naughty, would use a big stick. And uh, I understood the stick, because I may have uh, encountered that a few times when I was naughty. So I understood the illustration, but she said, unless you're right with Jesus, um, you're going to miss out on heaven and the big stick and all this sort of stuff. And I was terrified. So I rode my push bike to school. I didn't hang out with my mates that day and go on the side tracks. And I just went straight to school. And even during recess and lunchtime, Rick, I was, instead of thinking about cricket, which is really, there's nothing else to think about, except the NRL. That's true. But I couldn't even think about that because my mind was being haunted by this worship that my grandmother had shared with me. Soon as school finished, got on my MX, rode six kilometers back to my grandma's and as soon as I walked in and it's still fresh in my mind I put my push bike down I went inside and I began to cry and I said to grandma I am not ready for Jesus and besides that grandma I'm actually quite a naughty 10 year old so there's no chance for me and grandma sort of held me uh, and she comforted me 
And I'm not exactly sure even to this day whether she was thinking, yes, I got the message through to him. Or whether she was actually going, man, I think I need to change my message. Renewing our relationship with God means that we need to actually look at the message that we have received in our past and also currently the message that we were receiving about the relationship we have with Jesus. Unless we understand who Jesus is and that he does actually want to engage in our daily life and that he actually is part of our life, then it's going to be very hard to respond to him in a way that's healthy. I want to put that out to you because as a 10-year-old, my response was I was very concrete in my mind, but I was terrified of the fact that I knew that my relationship with God would be stuffed if it relied upon my good works. There are people probably sitting here today who know what I'm talking about. You know, we've driven in our relationship with God because of guilt. The freedom of grace and the freedom of God, the freedom that Jesus actually, when he came to this earth, was to actually break those chains so that you were in the freedom to have an amazing relationship through with God. I want to tell you that Jesus loves you. The prime example of his love is seen in Jesus. Not just Jesus on the cross or Jesus resurrected, but Jesus in the marketplace, Jesus in the home, Jesus in the synagogue. Jesus is the prime example of the measure of God's love. When someone does something nice to you, do you always feel like maybe you owe them? I was listening on the radio this week and they were talking about doing things of kindness. And a guy, it was Triple M, so I'm showing my age big time. And, and it was on Triple M and they were talking about kindness and a guy got on there and I think he was a plumber and he said, oh, I, was, I was lining up for my coffee and uh, the guy in front paid for my coffee. So I felt obliged to pay for the person's coffee behind me. Now I want to tell you, that there are times where maybe I've felt that way too. Someone's given a good gift, so you want to give a good gift back. But I want to tell you with Jesus, when he gives you a good gift, he doesn't require for you to then go out and buy a gift to give it back. The sort of gift that Jesus wants to give is like this treasure that he wants to just give and he wants to just honour the fact that this is a good gift. And for you and I, that is the struggle that we have when we respond to our Jesus. He wants to be in a relationship with us, absolutely for sure. But when he gives us good gifts, he doesn't, he doesn't require us to then go out and purchase it and give it back to Jesus. It's an incredible thing about our loving God. When we respond in my life, I've had three or four, and there are so many different emotions or different words for my response to Jesus. I want to share a couple of them with you. I'm a bit of ashamed of some of them, but it's true. There have been times in my life, my response to Jesus has been filled with apathy. Thanks for what you did. I'll look you up again next time when I need something. I've had periods in my life where that is the type of relationship or response I've had with Jesus. Indebtedness. 
The gift we are given was so great, we could never, ever repay the debt. There are a lot of Christians walking around with sad faces because that is exactly the type of relationship internally they have with Jesus. What you gave us so much, I can't give that back. So therefore, my relationship with you, the way I respond to you, I just can't give it all. I'll never be able to give what you gave, Jesus. And this is a really common one. Not just for me, but I believe for each one of us as humans, and that's shame. God's love is so good and so great that I keep stuffing up and I'm a terrible, nasty person. None of these responses are anything like what God would want for us. Perhaps we can learn something from those who walked 2,000 years ago with Jesus. You know, when Jesus came to this earth, there were people who just wanted to follow him. And there's three different groups. There's probably way more, but I just put them into three different groups. There are three different groups. There were people who would follow Jesus simply because he was the newest fad and, and following him, you got to see some pretty incredible things in your walk. There's a word for those sort of people, and it's not a nice word, but the word is parasites. They hang around popular people for personal gain. There were some of those in Jesus' entourage, and when his teaching became too difficult and challenging, they left. For them, Jesus wasn't about following Jesus. It was all about them. There was a second group. Some people were looking for what they could give. One of the most famous parables is the feeding of the 5,000. And at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus got on his boat and they went to find an area with the disciples, went to find an area where they could rest a while. Jesus didn't want to need to be around people all the time, 24-7. He needed some space with his father and, and some space with the disciples. The Bible tells us, and I'm pretty sure we've got this verse, found in John 6, verses 26 to 27. Jesus challenges them about their motives. And he says this, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that enjoys for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. And then there's a third group, and I actually like this third group because it's the ideal where we as Christians, we as Christians, it's something to, to work towards or attain. And others follow Jesus out of simple childlike faith. They weren't following him because he was popular. They weren't following him for what he could do for them, but simply because who he was. In John chapter 6, verses 66 to 68, the Bible tells us, and I'm sure we've got this verse as well. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked his 12 disciples. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus doesn't love us, so we will like him and think he's popular. 
Jesus doesn't love us so that we will follow him. Jesus loves us simply because of who he is. Why do you follow Jesus? Why do I? In Mark, the gospel, there are two amazing stories. And I've spent some time reading and rereading them and looking at them this week. And I must admit, the first character that we're going to look at is a leper. And it's found in Mark chapter 1. Let me read the story with you. I'm pretty sure we've got it on the screen as well. A man with leprosy, and this is Mark 1, and starting in verse 40, if you've got your phone or your Bible. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him. Oh yeah, I read that. Jesus was indignant. And I read this and I'm like, didn't Jesus heal people all the time? Like, this is the first time when I read in the scriptures that Jesus actually turns around and goes, look, you do have leprosy, but you annoy me. That's, that's what it seems to indicate. And then it continues. He said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy le- left him and he was cleansed. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. And again, the second time he's had a go at this guy. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Verse 45, instead, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news, and as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. How how do we respond to Jesus? Now, we all come with different conditions, which Jesus can actually help us with. I have absolutely no doubt about it. Some of them are secret things, some of them are very open things. But here, this man with leprosy had something that everyone could see, because the leper was seen as unclean. They were seen by the Jewish people as having some form of sin associated with their disease. And everyone knew that this guy was a leper because no one would want to be in their rightful mind would actually want to be seen with this guy. Certainly not within a distance. So he comes to Jesus on his knees. You would think that would be a good approach. But in this story, in in this story that's depicted from Mark, he comes and he says, just clean me, make me well. And Jesus must have understood that what, he was bringing to Jesus wasn't holy because he actually must have known within this man's heart that yes he needed to be healed but no he wasn't right with God his response to Jesus was like some of those first two groups what can I get out of it his heart wasn't engaged with Jesus what can I get out of it hey you can heal me This is a problem I've got. Fix it up. So Jesus does that and makes him clean. And Jesus used the word. Jesus was indignant. But he still still cleaned him and still healed him. Then Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone. And yet, when this man is made clean, the first thing he does is he ignores Jesus' request and he actually goes out and he says to the people, look what Jesus has done for me. 
Now, we would think this could be his testimony, but Jesus must have known that deep down inside, the response that he needed from this man was for him to be quiet, for him to just follow the instructions of Jesus and to go and show himself to the priest so that he could be made whole within his community again. I read that passage, friends, and I want to tell you, I've never read it in that context. Obviously, I've wanted to have that Jesus that just heals everyone. No problem. But in this context, sometimes Jesus, even when he does the miraculous for us, wants us to be quiet. Wants us just to listen to the word of God and to follow his clear instructions. Then we come to Mark chapter 5. And this is one of my all-time favorite stories in the scripture and in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 1 to 20, I know it sounds like a long story, but boy, it's a good one. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Again, the same posture as story number one. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? The name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out. And he went and they went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep banks into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs, well, you can imagine it, not impressed. They ran off and reported this in town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legions of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Verse 18, 19 and 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did, not, uh, Jesus did not let him but said, and this is so significant in this story, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away. And he began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all of the people were amazed. Thank you for just being patient in that story. I know it's long, but wow, what a story that is full of incredible things. In this story, Jesus picked someone who, to be honest, was seen as a total social outcast, just like the person with leprosy. But in this case, even worse than leprosy, this man had some power and some satanic stuff going on that scared the daylights out of everyone in the community. Absolutely petrified them. And yet Jesus 
and his love made sure that this man knew that he was important. First things first, he had to get rid of the demons and he did it. For a Jew, they, un- they would have actually been applauding the fact that Jesus sent the impure spirit into pigs. Because pigs have always been seen as an evil animal for the Jewish people. So they would have been okay with that. The local community wasn't because their economy had just been wiped out. But when Jesus was about to get in the boat and leave, this man wants to respond to Jesus. This man is... Jesus has changed this man's life. And while it's different to the story in Mark 1, his heart had been changed in the process. Mark 1, I don't think his heart had been changed. Jesus knew it. But in this story, the demon-possessed man's heart had been completely changed. And he begged, can I come and be one of your disciples? Can I come with you? Can I learn more? This is an incredible bit about our response to people in our community. You don't need to go to Avondale College to do a theology degree. Amen, Rick? You don't. Some of us have. We have endured that pain for you. But the reality is, it is all about being willing and open to a relationship with Jesus. Each one of us here has our own story. We have our own heartache. We have our own trials that we've won and lost. And it is from that story that you can make the biggest impact for the people in your community. That is how Jesus wants us to respond. Not because you know more. In fact, I would say Jesus would want you to know less. But it's all about knowledge. But when it comes to relationship, Jesus wants to have a rich relationship with each one of us. And that is where our heart needs to be to respond. Jesus says to him, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has gone for you and how he's had mercy on you. There is the message, the best message that anyone in this entire world could hear from you or I. People who love Jesus obey him. Not because they're worried about the big stick. I didn't know that as a 10-year-old. But because Jesus simply just wants to love on you. John 14 and verse 15, the Bible tells you, if you love me, you will obey what I command. John 13 and verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As a 10-year-old, my faith in God was focused in a very concrete way of thinking. I wanted a loving God, but the God that I saw, or that perhaps I wanted to see, was a God who was like a judge, ready to crack down on me when I strayed. At conversion at age 18, In year 12, I found a new way to live. It's the motto of my life. It's found in John 10, 10, and it says, God has come to give us life and to give it to us to the full. That full life is waiting for you and it's waiting for me. Our response should be to grab hold real tight to a loving Jesus who only wants what's eternally best for you and for me. It's our choice to reach out 
and hold on tight to a loving God who is always so happy when we respond to him with love. That is a huge challenge. Because it's so easy for us as Christians to say, Jesus, you're an incredible God. I'll put you up on a pedestal. Jesus doesn't want to be on a pedestal. He just wants to be in a relationship. Not up high, right next door, so he can hang on to your hand. Grab you by the shoulder and lead you through life. That's in my kingdom. I haven't always got it right, I want to tell you. That's for sure. But I want to tell you, the life of Jesus is worth responding to. Absolutely 100%. Let me pray with you. Dear God in heaven, we thank you uh, for being a God who loves us so much that he actually wants to be in relationship with us. We thank you uh, that you've sent us those commandments as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind and soul and to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Boy, that's the full package. When we understand that, Lord, the challenge is how do we respond to that? Today, we've just briefly looked at some stories in Scripture. We've told some personal stories. But the reality is each one of us is on a different journey, a different story. And Lord, I just want to pray over our people right here that we too can respond, not out of fear, but out of love. I pray that you be with us now as we go out into the mission fields, as we go out to share about your great love and to be able to tell our story with people we've come in contact with. This is my prayer. Amen.